In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And today you find us in a cold, dreary Scotland you believe that it was the middle of May. So we need something to cheer us up, Helen. What are you going to tell us about today? Well, I'm going to tell you about Jutopolis. Now, what's that, I wonder? We'll find out about that. And Liz, what are you going to be talking about? Well, we've had the subject of tea coming up quite a lot recently. And I thought I would talk about somebody who is associated with tea. I looked back for my topic to this time in history and she was born this week, 1849, so I'm going to tell you all about Catherine or Kate Cranston. Okay, Liz, well, I shall start off with my Jutopolis to put people out of their misery to find out what it is. When I was at school in the 50s and 60s, every schoolboy and girl learned that Dundee was famous for jute, jam and journalism. We've touched on jam with Dundee Marmalade and on journalism with comics in our podcasts. So in this episode, I'm looking at jute. Dundee's always been a textile town. Wool in the Middle Ages, then by the 18th century, linen. But problems with the supply of flax coincided with the East India Company looking to bring back raw jute from India. And so Dundee began a journey which ended up with it being known as Jute-opolis. In the 1820s, the first 20 bales of jute were unloaded at Dundee docks. It was to change the city's destination forever. So how did the fortunes of a Scottish city and a faraway region of the Indian subcontinent become so intertwined? Well, weaving, whaling and shipbuilding were the three vital ingredients that made Dundee the jute capital of the then modern world. Weaving was an important occupation in Dundee, as I've said, as far back as the 16th century. So the skills were already in place to adapt to the jute processing. The local whaling fleet provided the whale oil needed to soften the jute and make it workable. And Dundee's shipbuilding industry Another offshoot of the whaling heritage was put to work to construct the big 
fast ships that brought the jute from India, on top of which new worldwide markets were opening up for jute products. So what is jute? Well, it's one of the most versatile natural fibres known to man. Raw jute fibre is obtained from a plant which is native to what was Bengal in India, in the Indian continent. And during the 19th and early 20th centuries, jute was indispensable. Its uses included sacking, ropes, boot lining, aprons, carpets, tents, satchels, linoleum backing, tarpaulins, meat wrappers, oven cloths, horse covers, and even parachutes. Its appeal lay in its strength, low cost, durability, and versatility. Jute would come into the mill as a pucker bale weighing 400 pounds. From here, it would go through nine different processes, finally emerging from the mill as the finished woven product. The story of Jutopolis is the tale of two cities, both of them Dundee. One was a city populated by mill workers living in overcrowded squalor, and the other was the world of the wealthy jute barons with their mansions and estates. With so many women working in the mills, it was left to the unemployed men to become the kettle bilers, as they were called, and to look after the babies and cook the meals. The diet and living conditions of the workforce were very poor indeed, and all this in stark contrast to the privileged lives of the mill owners, well-educated, well-fed and well-off. Theirs was a genteel experience. In 1838, the first jute mill was opened, and at its peak, there were 150 jute firms in the city. In its heyday, the city was the world centre for the manufacture of the fabric, with around 40,000 people dependent on the industry for their livelihoods. In Dundee, three distinct areas gave access to the necessary water supply for the steam engines. Blackness, Lochie, and along the Densburn. Mills had been built in Blackness from about 1790s, and the Baxter brothers' Den's work on the Densburn was the world's largest linen works from about 1840. For many years, the chief output was sailcloths for the Admiralty, and the sailcloths they made for the RRS Discovery stood up to the demanding conditions in the Antarctic. But Baxter's remained faithful to flax as their standard material when the majority of the local people were changing to jute. By 1912, the harbour area occupied approximately 120 acres with three and a half miles of quayside. In the late 1830s, only about 1,200 tonnes of jute came to the city in a year. But by 1900, the figure had risen to 300,000 tonnes. One million bales of jute arrived in the city in 1883, so a colossal amount of shipping was using the port. The discovery that jute fibres could be softened in a mixture of whale oil and water came just at the right time for the Dundee whaling industry, which had been in serious decline. The jute industries created a new demand for whale oil. A new fleet of whaling ships was built and the industry reversed its decline. 
Expansion of the textile and related industries led to a huge population explosion from about 45,000 in 1841 to around 165,000 by 1901, and Dundee was Scotland's third largest city. And the incomers came from across Scotland and large numbers came from Ireland. Throughout the 19th century, some 50,000 people, half the working population of the city, were employed directly in jute industries and more were involved in subsidiary industries. Women jute workers outnumbered men by three to one and the city developed the reputation of being a women's town where women were strong and would speak their minds. Dundee has often been called a one industry city, a city dominated by and reliant upon jute. Other undertakings such as shipbuilding, whaling, textile engineering depended heavily on the jute industries. The Camperdown Works, which were begun in 1849 and eventually covered around 30 acres and at one point employed over 14,000 mostly female workers. It was at the time the world's largest jute works and was owned by the Cox brothers and the greatest landmark was its 282 foot high brick chimney known as Cox's Stack and this still stands today. Production there stopped in 1981. At its height there were about 100 mills in the Dundee area but roughly half of these have now been demolished. Mill buildings still survive and have been developed into social clubs, offices and housing. Today no working mills in Dundee and the once thriving industry has seen a dramatic change in fortune as advances in technology and changing tastes have seen the mills close. But one of the most unique examples of this is the former working mill buildings in Dundee run by Dundee Heritage as Verdant Works. Now an award-winning museum and commemorates the city's manufacturing heritage and operates a small jute processing facility. And on a personal note, my grandfather worked in the Midwind Works in Dundee and went to India to the jute industries in 1903. He returned back from India to the jute industries in Dundee and married my granny in 1912. And he continued to work in jute until he retired. So Liz, jute industries in Dundee, any thoughts? Yeah, plenty here, Helen. I'm just reflecting as I'm, I'm listening to you. First of all, I think it's important to tell our listeners, because they don't all come from the UK, what jute is. We would refer to jute as canvas, but in the States, um, it's burlap. So we're talking about burlap here. And it's also important to add that one of the other big, you know, you, you spoke about a lot of uses that the, the jute or canvas was put to. Of course, at this time, we had all the pioneers who were heading out west in the United States and they needed canvas or burlap for their covered wagons. So that was another source of demand for this new product. Yeah, Liz, I love that because I, I used to love watching the old cowboys like Wagon Train that were on television, the very early days of television. And I loved watching them and thinking, you know, as I was sitting with my, both my parents from Dundee and looking at the covered wagons and thinking, gosh, they came from Dundee. <laughs> Nowadays, they'd have a little um, stamp in the corner saying made in Dundee, Scotland. Not in those days. Exactly, yes. 
because I was listening to you, Helen, you were talking about the population explosion and the fact that the men were left at home case of too much time on their hands while they were staying at home. The poor women that were having to work as well. <laughs> I know. I think I think that's quite an interesting situation. But you know, there's something that crossed my mind when I was you know, looking at this. We've got all this problem at the moment with plastic polluting the the world really and jute was the sort of the container of choice for so many things this was a natural fiber and so it would biodegrade very easily so perhaps the jute industries might pick up again this is true it's a sustainable material and um, what else struck me was the ability of the, the town to adapt to the jute industry and then the seizing the opportunity to convert to jute. But in Dunfermline, of course, close to where we live, they also were dependent on the linen industry, but they transformed it into the silk industry. So again, looking for opportunities and seizing those opportunities, being innovative. Yes, and recognising that skills that they've had for generations are transferable to a more modern thing. But I was just thinking silk and jute, almost at opposite ends of a fabric spectrum. That's true. And then, of course, we got the synthetic materials, which put an end to everything, really. Um, with the development of technology, we began to get synthetic materials like rayon and crimpoline and all the others, and that stopped the demand. Yeah, plastics for bags, for sacks. We no longer needed the jute. Yeah. It's also interesting, you know, you were saying that after, with the decline of the, the jute industry, Dundee itself went into decline with the loss of its traditional industries. And I would say that it was probably for a long time one of our poorest cities in Scotland. But again, it has reinvented itself. And so today it has really thriving industries, particularly in the biomedical field, um, which spins off from the University of Dundee and Ninewells Hospital in Dundee. But also, um, surprisingly, digital arts design. And uh, anybody who's into computer gaming will know that a lot of the um, Rockstar and all the other companies involved in producing um, computer games are based in Dundee. Yes, and it was interesting, again, that some of the wealth, we talked about the jute barons and all the wealth, but Dundee did benefit from that wealth, although perhaps the workers did not at the time, but Dundee itself did. And Abertay University, which is the one that's mainly associated with the, the Rockstar and the video games, um, they benefited quite a bit from the wealth of the jute barons in the days of when they were a college. And Dundee's got beautiful outdoor areas such as Baxter Park, gifted to the city by the Baxter brothers who had the Baxter mills. So the, the city itself benefited, although the jute barons had the luxurious lifestyle while the workers lived in squalor. <laughs> Yeah, and it's perhaps it's not top of the list when it comes to um, visitors to Scotland thinking about what they're going to add to their itinerary. But today it's definitely well worth a visit. The Victoria and Albert, which is the only Victoria and Albert museum outside London. Yes, and the word has just uh, been released that the Dundee is getting the Eden Project. That's that wonderful project down in, in Cornwall, isn't it? And they're having an offshoot being built on the old gas works down by the docks at Dundee, hopefully by about 2023, 20, there might be some evidence of that. So it's certainly again on the up Dundee. 
definitely worth including on your itinerary if you're coming to Scotland. And of course, it was here that um, Earl Grey tea was introduced to Scotland, wasn't it? With the tea clippers bringing tea in, Earl Grey. I think that's definitely a story for the future. That is, and probably a beautiful link, Liz, into your topic for the week. My goodness, Helen, you'd think this was planned and it's all just absolute (laughs) (laughs) chance, happen chance. Okay, segueing into my topic for the day then, I've said that I'm going to be looking at Kate Cranston, born this week, 1849, in her father's hotel in George Street, Glasgow. Now, those of you who've heard of her will probably associate her with the Cranston Tea Rooms in Glasgow. But there was so much to this woman. She was astute in business, a social pioneer, a patron of design, and ultimately philanthropist to the city she loved. And her story is well worth recounting. She was born in the Victorian era, and if you've been watching your period dramas on television, you'll have some idea of the strict mores of that time. Young women were expected to be chaperoned, to marry well and to stay home keeping house and looking after the children. Glasgow has been described as the second city of the empire and at the time of Kate's birth it was at its industrial height. However, with economic success came social problems, poverty, disease and in particular a hard drinking culture that through a Victorian lens was seen as the blight of the working classes and they were determined to do something about it. Kate was born into an entrepreneurial family of hoteliers, but while the Cranston family hotels may have offered commercial rooms and parlours with wines, spirits and ales on hand alongside cigars, newspapers and writing materials, they were also staunch supporters of the temperance movement, a society that waged war against drunkenness, excess, and sought to find some alternative to alcohol. Tea, which until the 1830s had been seen as an exclusive luxury for the rich, was increasingly affordable and was being viewed as an alternative focus for socialising. Kate's brother Stuart was a tea aficionado who bought and sold tea leaves and who always had a boiling kettle to hand so that customers could sample before buying. He started charging a fee for these sample cups of tea, with a small bite to accompany them. And then he set up tables and chairs in his premises so that his clients could relax as they took their tea. The concept of a tea room was established. Times were changing and businessmen in the city, who would traditionally have gone home for lunch, were now looking for an alternative to the hard drinking pubs for a light bite. Taking inspiration from her brother, Kate decided to open her own tea room, but her strong design flair, coupled with her natural business acumen, took the whole concept to a whole new level. She wanted to create a welcoming atmosphere for her customers, and although the majority remained working males, she recognised that respectable women were now able to go out on their own, and with shopping beginning to become a pastime, they were looking for a social hub in the city, where they could take refreshments, use the facilities, because remember at this time there were no public toilets, and most importantly, socialise unchaperoned. In 1878, Miss C. Cranston established the Crown Luncheon Room on Glasgow's Argyle Street. In 1882, when she married a wealthy businessman, John Cochrane, 
eight years her junior, oh, the scandal of it, he purchased the lease for 114 Argyle Street in its entirety as her wedding present, and this was to start the expansion of her empire. She broke with convention by continuing to work after marriage and acquired three further properties over the next 10 years in Ingram Street, the Cannon Street, and finally completing her chain with the famous Willow Tea Rooms on Socky Hall Street. Unusually for the time, she retained her maiden name and continued to trade as C. Cranston's Tea Rooms. Notice no miss. With her artistic flair and keen eye for design, she recognised that ladies were looking for stylish and elegant surroundings to take their tea. And one of her greatest achievements was to recognise and recruit the talents of budding local artists to style the interior of her premises. Foremost among these were Charles Rennie Mackintosh and his wife, Margaret MacDonald, who, amongst other commissions, were given the artistic freedom to design all aspects of the Willow Tea Rooms. Everything from interior deco to the furniture to the cutlery, even the outfits worn by the waitresses. Their work on the Willow has been described by many as a landmark in the history of design. Behind a simple but striking facade, three interlinked tea rooms at ground level led up to the famous Salon Deluxe, which stretched the entire length of the building. This magnificent room boasted a shimmering crystal chandelier of pink glass balls and Macintosh's characteristic high-backed chairs, painted silver and upholstered in purple velvet. Even the waitresses had a special uniform made specially in France with chokers of pink pearls. Such cutting-edge designs set Cranston's tea rooms apart from contemporaries and ahead of anything else found anywhere in Europe. They were a sensation at the time and were critically acclaimed in all the newspapers and art magazines of the day. A new term was even coined to denote something at the height of beauty. It's quite Kate Cranstonish. But as one journalist rightly pointed out, if the artistic surroundings were not accompanied by prompt service and excellent cooking, Miss Cranston's rooms would not have the popularity they enjoy. Kate's behind-the-scenes operations screamed military efficiency, and she was renowned for high standards and strict rules. However, it was the treatment of her staff that generated controversy. She tended to employ orphans or girls from single-parent families, and while some saw this as philanthropic, others viewed it as a way to reduce the likelihood of complaints about a job where the pay was low and the hours were long. Girls were expected to work 13 hours a day, six days a week, with a 10-minute lunch break. Harsh even for Victorian times. However, she was an advocate for the employment of women, and although by general agreement she was a tough boss, she also ran a compulsory insurance scheme, made sure her staff had three meals a day, and visited them at home when they were sick. She was certainly eccentric, and dressed in crinolines from a bygone age. When the architect Edwin Lutyens visited her tea room in 1897, she was 48 years old, and he described her as a dark, busy, fat wee body with black, sparkly, luminous eyes, wearing a bonnet garnished with roses. But she was ahead of her time in terms of sustainability, growing her own flowers for the tea rooms, 
and supplying fresh foods from her own dairy. She devoted her life to developing a chain of successful and stylish tea rooms and never had any children. Her marriage to John was by all accounts very happy and when he died prematurely in 1917, she was devastated. She sold off her tea rooms and wore black for the rest of her life. When she herself died in 1934 at the age of 85, she left two-thirds of the estate, equivalent to over £5 million today, to the poor of Glasgow, the city she had lived and worked in for her entire life. The Willow Tea Rooms building reopened in 2019 after a £10 million restoration project. And in October 2018, it was announced that Kate Cranston would feature on a design for the Royal Bank of Scotland £20 note to be circulated in 2020. The first woman, other than Queen Elizabeth II, ever to be depicted on a banknote of that denomination. Fitting tribute to a pioneering businesswoman and patron of the arts. Well, Helen, I know that you've taken tea in the, the Willow Tea Rooms before. Yes, I have. And it's it's a lovely experience. Now, it was something you said there, Liz, about the, the girls that she employed. The last time I took tea in the Willow Tea Rooms was just after it reopened, after its big renovation. And I'm sure that I was told at the time that it is part of a, a social experiment of bringing people in, young people in, teaching them how to, you know, teaching the, the, the work of working in a tea room, uh, giving them skills as a social experiment, not experiment, but a social thing. And a bit like some of these other little cafes that are popping up as well. And I thought that really is building on what Miss Cranston was all about. That's absolutely true. Um, she was a social pioneer. And there's obviously the temperance movement and allowing people to shift away from alcohol and having more choice in the places that they, they went to, but also in allowing women to become more free. But the other thing that she did was, as you say, to introduce a very innovative training programme for all of her staff. Um, she made sure that they were well-trained and she's also famous for her Miss Cranston's Rules for Girls, 1911. And uh, a lot of their work involved scrubbing. <laughs> Hygiene was very important in those days. But she did develop a mechanism where they could send the orders up. I think it was probably like one of those shoots, you know, the vacuum shoots that you, you that we used to have when we, when we were young, when you went into the co-op, your order in one of those shoots. Or, of course, in Stirling, it was in Mingus's in Stirling. It was the co-op for me. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> she was very eccentric in her dress. Black crinolines back to the Victorian era. And when you were, again, when you were saying that, it struck me that she was hardworking like the women of Dundee, but she was at the other, another, another end of the spectrum. She was the boss who was hardworking, whereas the women in Dundee were hardworking because they had to, to live. Yeah, that's very true, Helen. Yeah, good ob observation there. Yeah, but it was the beginning of women beginning to be recognised. But she, in, in the, the early 1900s, was the only female to be recognised in Glasgow as a businesswoman. Oh, gosh, gosh, yes. Yeah. We've changed days now, I would think. 
I think that you know, that's two very contrasting lifestyles. One, the women of Glasgow who were seeking somewhere that they could go and sit and sip tea, and the women of Dundee who were going out to work in the jute mills. Two contrasting sets of, of women in two different cities, but in Glasgow, there'd be typical women like the Dundee women as well working in the factories. But Liz, perhaps it's now time for our word of the week, do you think? Have you got a word? I have indeed. When I was listening to Edwin Lutyen's um, description of Kate Cranston, there was one word that sprang to mind, and that was a wee bochel. Right, it's spelled different ways, but normally you would spell it B-A-U-C-H-L-E. She was a wee bochel. Now, traditionally, that meant an old shoe, which had become all worn down at the back, and people would then use the, cut the backs off and use them as slippers. So from an old slipper, an old worn-out slipper, we get the description a wee bochel applied to people. So, for example, a man might be described as a wee shuckly-legged bochel, a wee bandy-legged bochel. But in the case of, of Kate Cranston, she was described as a wee fat, untidy wifey. Um, so, a wee bochel. That's a great word, that, and it's so descriptive. Well, my word is slightly different. It's more, it's more dependent on accent and you know, how, how you say it. I mentioned in the jute industries about all the things that you could use the sacks and things for, the, the jute for, for making things. But for the, for the posh ladies, the ladies that would go to Kate Cranston's tea rooms in Glasgow or perhaps live in the Kings Park area of Stirling, when they talked about sex, sex, <laughs> it wasn't what we might think of nowadays as sex. To them, sex was what the coal came in. The sex of coal. <laughs> so that's two words for today. Sex <laughs> and bochel. <laughs> Good words, Helen. Good. Thoroughly enjoyed it today. Thank you. Bye for now. And there we have it. The end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the moo from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. bye.